fact, I'm often tempted to think that the real value of the human emotional system is not so much doesn't so much reside in the emotions you feel in the present, but in your ability to use them in the simulations of the future. And that's a key insight into why we do what we do. We peer into the future and use our anticipated emotions to help determine how we should act right now. It's an incredibly important observation, in part because it's different from what many of us have been led to believe, you know, that our behavior is being driven by the emotions that we're feeling at the moment. That simple shift in how we think about emotion and its impact on our behavior is profound. So with that, we welcome you to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that dives deep into why we do what we do. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. That audio from the beginning was Roy Baumeister, the researcher known for his work on subjects such as willpower, self-control, and self-esteem, and how they relate to human morality and success. Our conversation with Roy was packed with many insights in how we feel, think, and act based on the complex ways we view and experience the world. Tim and I felt like we were starting a masterclass when we hit the record button, and we love sharing this conversation with you. Roy Baumeister is a foundational figure in the field of psychology. His body of research includes groundbreaking work on self-defeating behavior, our need to belong, self-regulation, free will, and erotic plasticity, too. His work has been cited more than 200,000 times. Just think about that. 200,000 citations. That is a remarkable achievement. And by comparison, the very quotable Dan Gilbert, who we again quote in this this episode, has been cited about 45,000 times. And everybody's favorite, Dan Ariely, has been cited about 49,000 times. It's not a competition, but we want to let you know that if you're not familiar with Roy Baumeister, today is your lucky day. Roy is remarkable for his tremendous output. He's authored or co-authored more than 30 books and more than 500 peer review articles. And of course, for the breadth and depth of topics that we've just mentioned, Kurt, I've just got to ask you, can you imagine writing 30 books? It's hard enough to get my head around writing one <laughs> book. Yeah, I'll say. So his ability to produce replicable research is admirable. We are grateful that he took time to talk to us about self-control, needing to belong, the role emotions play in our decision-making, all those things. It was a great conversation for lots of reasons, but honestly, it was just inspiring to speak with him. And one last thing before we head into our conversation with Roy, we want to ask you for your help in supporting Behavior Grooves. This conversation with Roy is our 170th episode. We're in this for the long haul, and we would greatly appreciate your kind support. We have a Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash behavioral grooves where you can join our merry band of supporters for less than the cost of a single venti caramel macchiato or a pumpkin spice latte each month. D- did I say that? Is it is it caramel? Is that right? Did I say Ca- that right? Caramel? Caramel? I, I, you know, I am not the one who should be talking about pronunciation. You know that. All right. <laughs> So the point is this, for less than a trip to Starbucks, you can support Behavioral Grooves, join the gang of Groovers who are already supporting us, and you will have our gratitude forever and ever and ever. 
longer than what it would take to drink one of those <laughs> things <laughs> from Starbucks. Pumpkin spice. <laughs> Just stick with pumpkin spice, Tim. Okay. And after our conversation with Roy, we'll share our grooving session and bonus track. And in the grooving session, Kurt and I are going to dig deep into what we consider the most salient points he discussed with Roy. And then in the bonus track, we'll take roughly two and a half minutes and recap the whole conversation uh, with you and offer you a challenge for the week. And we call that our groove idea. So we hope you hang out with us until then. With that, we encourage you to sit back and relax with a venti-sized cup of self-control <laughs> and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Roy Baumeister. Roy Baumeister, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, we are excited to have you. And and we always start with a speed round. So, Tim, go ahead. Take us take us going. Roy, coffee or tea? Tea. Okay. Ah, all the time? Or sometimes? All I've only had a cup of coffee, I think, three times in my life. And I uh, <laughs> didn't really like any of them. A man after my own heart. I love it. <laughs> all right. All right. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite sports star or musician? A uh, musician. Okay. Again, you're gonna you're 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 getting in good with Tim. He's the musician of the group here. So okay. anyone come to mind? Any any musician in particular? Oh goodness. Uh I'm mostly a jazz person myself, but uh uh, lately, one of my buddies got me yeah. listening to Yo-Yo Ma and said, uh, um, he's not only a maestro, but a, a mensch, he said. And uh, <laughs> so would be an interesting person to get to know. That's a pretty good recommendation right there. Okay. Would you rather learn a new instrument or a new language? Oh, well, I... Um, well... The instrument's a lot more fun than the language. So if we talk about the learning process, I'd rather know another language than another instrument. Mm. Uh, but in terms of the learning, I think the music would be more satisfying. I like I like that answer. Yeah. Yeah. All right, last one. Is it better to be a hedgehog, a fox, or a hedge fox at a cocktail party? <laughs> the hedge fox came from one of my own publications. Uh, George Lowenstein uh, came up with the term. Um, so I would go with hedge fox just, <laughs> well, and, just out of loyalty. And we brought that up because of that article. So you, you, you wrote and did some research around that with, with George Lowenstein and then also, also Kathleen Voss, who we've both, both, uh, have been on the, on the podcast before and, and are yeah. good friends of ours. So, um, so tell us a little bit about what that research showed or, or, or kind of talked about. Oh, well, that's a distant memory. Uh, the hedge... <laughs> Sorry to, to pull you, make you, make you reach back. I know it's been a while. But... So uh, the hedgehog knows one thing really well, and the fox knows a lot of things slightly, right? If that was the yep. idea. And so the hedge fox was some kind of compromise. Mm -hmm. um, um, so what was... Your question was which one I wanted to be, or oh no, you wanted to. Tell <laughs> well, that was the original question. I was just looking at at the research, and it was talking, you know, a little bit about uh, some of the emotions and various different aspects of that. So it, it's just it's it's an interesting concept of of having that mix of being 
specific, you know, knowing one thing to, to a great degree or knowing a little bit about a huge amount of, of different aspects and what that means for, for moving forward. So, yeah, well, I think uh, George came up with the term uh, uh, grappling with the question of how emotions affect uh, decision making. Uh, and, uh, well, the, there's no simple answer to that. Uh, <laughs> people make decisions based on their current emotional state. Uh, it often messes them up and has them do irrational things. The reputation of emotion for producing irrationality is well-deserved. On the other hand, uh, people who have little or no emotional sense, uh, including because of some brain dysfunction and so on, they're not super wise like old Mr. Stock and the Star Trek things who is always completely rational and so on. They can't make up their minds. Uh, you need to have the feeling of what's good or bad. Now they can spin out uh, all the possibilities and analyze things in depth, but which one is better? You need uh, emotion to do that. In our own research, we also find that anticipated emotion leads to really uh, better decisions. Uh, so mm. you map out, well, if I do this, then this will happen, and then I respond this way and so on, and this will lead to this outcome. Uh, and so then I'll feel sorry about that. I'll feel guilty. I'll feel happy or whatever. Um, and so that influences the decision process, and you need that. In fact, I'm often tempted to think that the real value of the human emotional system is not so much doesn't so much reside in the emotions you feel in the present, but in your ability to use them in these simulations of the future. Uh, uh, we published a meta-analysis a couple of years ago on does emotion drive behavior? And this is based on articles in social psychology's leading journal uh, where they started measuring emotion as a mediator. You know, you manipulate something and then you see how people react. And uh, there's an assumption that it's, well, the first thing made them happy or sad or angry or worried or, or whatever. And that's what drove the answer. And that is almost never true. I think something like 15% of them were significant at the 5% level, and the 5% means that 5% uh, uh, are random. So it's just barely above chance. Whereas anticipated emotion, which is studied much less, but was much more effective, something like 85 or 90% of the time, uh, it was significant. So people's behavior is driven by how they expect to feel much more than how they feel. And as I said, there's also the uh, adaptive argument that when you act on the basis of your current feelings, it's often unwise. It's like the standard argument. You can write the email while you're angry, but don't hit send until you don't be mad. That's <laughs> uh, much more ad adaptive. Uh, but anticipated emotion uh, is crucial and, and helps you. And if you do things that you think you'll feel happy about and that uh, um, um, and, and that you won't feel guilty about or won't regret or whatever. Uh, using that effectively is really one of the keys to effective human functioning. So we're calling wow. on the, you know, there's tons of research on emotion, but mostly it studies how you feel right now. And, and so we kind of call on the field to start 
shifting the emphasis to studying anticipated emotion and the process of learning that if I do this, I'll feel guilty. If I do this, I'll be happy. This uh, is a crucial part of socialization into society. Uh, and when it works well, it works really well. Well, it we do it automatically, right? We we kind of, this this is core to the human condition, right? That we do anticipate emotions. But the part that, if I understand you correctly, we're not doing a very good job of integrating that into our decision-making models. Well, some of us do better than others. <laughs> uh, and it's a, it, again, it's a learning process. Uh, guilt, I think, often functions that way. I, I mean, the, the example for the old thing that, uh, the old theory is that emotion directly causes behavior. The example people mm -hmm. use is fear. And they say, well, you see the tiger, and so you're afraid, and so you run away, and then you live to, to fight another day. Uh, if you didn't have fear, you might stand there and say, oh, hi, kitty. And then it would... It would <laughs> <laughs> game over. Game is over. Uh, and this example comes up over and over again. Uh, and yet there's very little evidence that it's actually true even for fear. And it doesn't generalize much to other emotions. It turns out people see a tiger, they run away before the emotion has time to develop. Uh, if you've mm -hmm. ever... Uh, uh, I used to go jogging in the woods near my house and the, uh, the wildlife... I go with my dog especially and... The wildlife would just flee when they'd hear us coming. They wouldn't wait around. Emotion takes time to develop. Mm -hmm. You know, the brain has to process the, the stimulus. You know, who is this? What's that noise coming along? And then to create an emotion of fear, it has to get the heart beating faster and all that. And then the brain would have to say, oh, I guess I'm afraid. Uh, and, then, and, then, and then flee. Uh, but that's too slow. Uh, instead, the animal flees at the first sign of danger. Uh, and that's the way to be safe. So that model doesn't even apply to fear. Uh, we all huh. assumed it was true, that, and I did too, that emotion was the direct cause of behavior. Uh, but the, the data don't support it. There are a couple other scholars reviewed the research on emotion, and they said pages and pages of how emotion affects your thinking process, but mm -hmm. only a half page on emotion causing behavior, and some of that is, is dysfunctional. Anyway, um, so uh, guilt is the prototype for the new theory. It's sort of the, this feedback theory that uh, you have learned over time uh, that if you act this way, you'll end up feeling guilty. You know, probably don't realize it the first time. Uh, you know, many people, mm. you know, the reports of why they feel guilty, you know, they didn't realize they were hurting someone or offending someone and so on, and then Afterwards, they, they feel bad about it. And, and over time, though, they learn that if I do this, I'll feel guilty. Uh, so I shouldn't do this. So guilt, guilt can function really effectively for guiding behavior, even if you hardly ever actually feel guilty. So there's a, there's a learned aspect of that. Because I know Dan Gilbert has done some research on the, how poor people are at predicting what will make them happy in the future. Uh, and so it sounds to, to some degree that there is a learning aspect in this as well as just that anticipatory aspect of it uh, moving forward. Or am I mistaken in that, in that thought? Well, uh, many people take Dan's research that way. Uh, my take on it is that people are generally correct about which emotion they will feel. 
Uh, oh. They're just wrong about how long it will last. Uh, you know, they, they vastly overestimate its durability. Um, so it calls forecasting your emotional state affective forecasting. Uh, it's, it's sort of given the idea, given people the impression that uh, people in general aren't, aren't good at predicting their emotional outcomes. But no, they predict the correct emotion. They just predict it to be much longer lasting and bigger than it actually is. And that's adaptive. I mean, the big part of something is usually the functional part. So it, it's adaptive, you know, if you're working, you had studies of uh, professors uh, wondering whether they would get tenure, and they thought, well, if I don't get tenure, I'll be sad, and if I do get it, I'll be happy. And they're right about those. It's just they thought, if I don't get tenure, I'll be miserable for years, whereas they get <laughs> over it pretty fast. They go on to something else, and, and something else comes along. But it's adaptive to think I'd be miserable for years because that motivates you to work harder uh, for the goal. Uh-huh. So I, I, uh, I'm not sure what his current thinking, Dan's own current thinking about uh, this is. No, I, th- I think that is fascinating because when you when you put it that way, it makes uh, a major sense in in how that that correlates into what you were just saying. So the 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 directional aspect is right. If I'm, I, I will be happy or I will be sad. It's just the duration and the and the you know strength of that emotion, which, as you said, has some um, some valiance on this. And then you can look at current situation with you know COVID and and how we've been responding to that as to some of those aspects of of our behavior that that come along with that. So, kind of brings me back to my my. My recent book on the, the power of bad. I mean, dealing with the COVID uh, epidemic. I mean, yes, it's a, a real thing, and so on. But almost certainly, we're overreacting, just because that's how the mind works. I mean, the, the point of that book, the, the power of the bad, which uh, I want to tell Ruth, it's actually a very upbeat, <laughs> positive book. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great read. Yeah, it really is. But, it's not a big downer. It's a great the, read. Yeah. The point is that people, or that the human mind uh, evolved to overreact to negative things. And that was, you know, it's more important to avoid uh, one chance of being killed uh, than to pursue one chance for uh, pleasure, happiness, or or whatever. Uh, yeah. An important part of the, the book, uh, pretty early on, you talk about the rule of four. And could you explain that to our listeners? Because I think that that, that was a we, – we, we're, a lot of people are familiar with loss aversion and the whole idea of it. It's uh, we've got lots of documentation that we, we tend to have a, a greater emotional reaction to losing $100 than we do to gaining $100. But, um, but the rule of four is a really interesting take on this, uh, Roy. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your, your thinking behind putting that together. All right. Uh, well, the rule of four is because bad things have more impact than good things, you want to, one wants to quantify it and how much stronger is bad than good. Uh, and, you know, there's no exact number. Uh, but I think we started with the idea that oh, I know I did something bad to uh, bother my friend or uh, my romantic partner or whatever, so I should do something nice to them to make up for it. But that's probably not good enough, since the bad has the stronger than the good. 
They may seem like they're the same to you, but they don't have the same impact. So you want to think of it, I, I should do four uh, good things to make up for it. And that will likely get you back on track and, and to overdo it. Um, the, the original quantification, I think, came from the relationships researcher John Gottman, who uh, uh, looked at couples and videotaped them talking about what was happening in their lives and their conflicts and their joys and so on. Uh, and then uh, minutely coded the positive and negative things that they said to each other. He said, uh, well, for the, and then he would track them over time and see if they stayed together or got a divorce or broke up. Uh, he said the, the couples where there were five times as many positive things as good things, they had strong, happy marriages five times. So mm. four was about the break even point uh, less than that. Uh, it was doomed, even though you're, you may think, oh, I'm doing twice as many positive as negative things, but that's, uh, that's not enough. There was a possibly apocryphal story of a relationships researcher had this giant data set and they were supposed to say, okay, what's the best predictor of, uh, of whether, how well the, the marriage will go in the future? And they went around the table and some said, well, they have to have the same religion or politics or, or whatever. Uh, but uh, what turned out to win was the ratio of how often they had sex to how often they fought. <laughs> and, uh, if they had sex five times as often as they fought, uh, then they had a happy marriage. Uh, and and yeah. the, the point is that the ratio ma was what mattered. So it wasn't sort of the, the, the raw number of uh, fights or intercourses. Uh, but you know, it worked for couples who hardly ever fought, even if they only had sex a couple times a year. Uh, and it worked for couples who would have a fight once a week, even if they had sex every day. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, if it was five times that, that seemed to lead to success. And there's nothing particularly magical about sex in this. Maybe there's something magical about sex in general, but, uh, but, it's 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 you know, for in research what matters is what you can quantify what you can measure objectively and so you yeah. ask a couple well how many positive interactions have you had with your husband you know what does that count when you said please pass the salt and he did you know it's, it's hard, hard to give a number of that <laughs> but most people can give you an exact number of how many times you had sex in the past week and how many times have you had a fight in the past week so uh that you know, it's a, a crude but uh, durable and highly effective measure. But but I shouldn't take that to say because I don't fight with my wife, I should have more fights so that we have to have more sex so that we have a good relationship. Yeah, have, not, uh, not, no, not the no, way. No, more, um, <laughs> increasing sex. You know, it's fine to be way above the uh, the five to one ratio. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, good. Um, so you have done a lot of work on self-control and willpower. And, and uh, you know, one of my uh, probably top 10 books of all time is willpower um, um, that, that you wrote. And, and so uh, can you, you talk a little bit about, um, you know, why is, so, is self-control so difficult for people? What are some of your research findings around uh, this and, and and particularly, I know that you have done this the strength model of self control. And so, could you talk a little bit about some of that from your perspective? Um, it is something people always think uh, is much more often cited as a weakness than a strength. I think of, mm -hmm. uh, of the 
the uh, Peterson and Seligman's list of character strengths. They had 24, I think. And self-control is uh, the least least frequently <laughs> cited as one of my five best strengths and often cited as a weakness. But I think that's a bit unfair. Uh, the glass is, is half full as well as half empty. We have a lot more self-control than the animals we evolved from. It's just that... Mm. Uh, because it's so useful for culture, we all know if we had even more, we'd probably be doing even better. Uh, so, yes, there's room for improvement, and we can see to perfection, but should take time to appreciate uh, that we really uh, do have pretty good self-control. Uh, it's something most people acquire uh, in the process of, of growing up. Uh, so uh, children obviously have less uh, than adults. They're more impulsive, uh, even part of the charm of children is they uh, wear their hearts on their sleeve. They show their emotions right away very vividly, and we, we think that's uh, cute and charming. As an adult, you learn, well, that's not really appropriate anymore. you got to keep your emotions <laughs> more uh, more under wraps, and, and most people... Not, not so cute and charming right? when you're an yes. adult, no. <laughs> so, and so most people are pretty successful at, at that. It's just we don't appreciate the, the successes we have. Now, again, this is something in elsewhere in nature. It's much more limited. There's not nearly as much self-control. There's for some, uh, but uh, partly other animals aren't able to think about the future as much. And, and self-control really serves the future at the expense of the present. When there are temptations in the present uh, that you need to resist for the sake of the future, whether it's to want to spend a whole bunch of money or eat a bunch of un unhealthy food or have sex with the wrong person or take a swing at somebody you're mad at. Uh, all those might be satisfying in the short run, but self-control helps you resist them, which is good in the long run. Again, animals can't really think more than a few minutes into the future. They don't have the sense, so it doesn't uh, reflect uh, back in the, the present. And, and we humans, this is one of our abilities is to simulate the, the future and use that to, to guide the present. So self-control uh, is vital there. But again, we evolved from animals that are just impulsive. You act on your strongest feeling right now. So to overcome that, uh, which civilization does require, uh, takes this, this, this newly enhanced self-control facility. So that's, that's a reason we shouldn't be surprised that it's difficult and that, that it sometimes fails. Um, from my research, what seems to uh, uh, have happened is the, the body found a way to channel some of, the, of its energy supply uh, into these advanced uh, psychological functions, like overriding your strongest impulse, you know, what you feel like doing. You're really angry and you want to punch somebody or whatever. Uh, you can override that. Uh, but it does consume this energy, and, and the body acts like the, it's rather severely limited. There are interesting, complicated scientific debates as to whether a well-fed modern person really is in any danger of running out of energy for this. Uh, but we evolved under conditions much different when the next meal was not nearly as, uh, as reliable. There were not supermarkets full of food, takeout. Uh, restaurants and all these other things available. Uh, so you, it was more important to conserve energy. Uh, 
my personal pet theory based on Suzanne Segerstrom's work and, and some others uh, is that another driving factor is that a lot of the, uh, the, the body's energy is used by the immune system, but just only sometimes. Yeah, so fighting mm-hmm. off diseases. Uh, and when you don't have a disease or an injury or anything, then you don't need that energy. But the body has to conserve it because in the hunter-gatherer years, you're running around barefoot. If you got a scratch on your foot and it got infected, that could kill you unless your your body could marshal all its energy to fight that off. So it was you know, being overly conservative with your your body's energy supply was the adaptive thing to do. And the body approaches self-control like that uh, after it exerts you know, some extra energy and self-control and resisting a temptation. It acts like it's sort of low on energy, not because it's really run out, but because you know, that's its, uh, its innate disposition as we, we've got to conserve that energy has to go Save for the immune system, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, all the other uh, organs also need energy. So you can't use too much for any one thing. The, the nice implication of that is we, we probably do have more capacity for self-control than we think. Uh, but we have to overcome this natural tendency. It's the term ego depletion as a homage to Freud just because... Uh, he talked about energy as... Uh, he talked about the self as consisting of energy and that had just gone out of fashion, uh, but seem, seems to be true. So in our studies, well, I mean, describe briefly how we, we, we came to this. I, uh, I've been interested in the self for a, a long time. I was in graduate school during, right after the hippie days and finding yourself and knowing yourself. That was the thing. And the hippies <laughs> were taking acid and whatnot to learn about themselves. Uh, but scholars were interested too. Uh, so I studied how self-esteem and how people present themselves to others and stuff like that. And then people started saying, well, how the self regulates itself, that's crucial. It's, it's not just one other, one more feature of the self, but rather it's the key to everything. So I thought, well, I better learn about that. And I read what research I could find back, this is the late 1980s on self-regulation, self-control. Uh, it was... You know, like quitting smoking, dieting, stuff like that. I came away with the impression mm-hmm. that, uh, well, a lot of uh, it's, a lot of the research sort of suggests this pattern that it's a limited energy supply that looks like people have exerted self-control in one sphere. They somehow aren't ready to be good at self-control again in some other sphere. Uh, this is in the manuscript, the book that I had. Uh, doing at the time, and I was on sabbatical, I sent it back to my graduate students, uh, and one of them said, oh, we could do an experiment on that. We could just give people a first self-control task, uh, or in the control condition, sort of a, a similar task that wouldn't take self-control, and then throw them a completely different self-control task right after that, and see how they did. And sure enough, uh, the ones who had already exerted self-control in one sphere did worse at the other. This was the opposite of the the prevailing theories at the time, which were all based on the mind is a computer and it's all information processing. And, you know, if you load one program into the computer, then it's faster to do the next thing. So the information processing thing is that, well, once you're in the self-controlling mode, 
then another self-control test comes along, you should be better at it because it's already, like I said, the program's mm. up and running. But we consistently found the opposite, uh, that they did worse uh, on the second task. And uh, when something starts working in the lab, other people come around and be interested too. And so, so a lot of students got involved and presented at conferences. And other labs started getting the, the same finding. Um, so that, that spread uh, quite nicely. I think it's interesting that uh, there is this uh, parallel between the hippies dropping acid and the scholars uh, pursuing an interest in the self, <laughs> to say, but, <laughs> yes. but, but through very different means. Uh, yes, very different means, for sure. Uh, there's probably some overlap. Yeah. I bet some of the scholars did the acid, too, back in those days. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, so is there is there anything that that people can do if, if this this depletion uh the ego depletion various different pieces and you talk about it but is it uh i know there's been the, the talk of it it's like a muscle and if you train it can you can you increase your your self-control your willpower are there things that people can do to be better at self-control Absolutely. and to me that's one of the most exciting implications of that line of work uh, that you know, just like a muscle, it's tired after you use it, so it's less effective. But it gets stronger if you use it regularly. Uh, researchers in multiple places on different continents and so on have tried doing this, giving people self-control exercises, and then measuring their self-control in some completely different sphere. And sure enough, uh, it seems to work. I think there are two meta-analyses that in press are recently published done by other mm. people that I, I only vaguely know. Um, compiling all, a meta-analysis combines the work of lots of different uh, labs and studies uh, to draw a broad conclusion, and they, they both found a, a robust significant effect that training self-control does enable you to do better even at tests quite unrelated to what the training was about. So I train you well, the first study we did that worked we had people work on their posture and we said for two weeks whenever you think of it sit up straight stand up straight and then we brought them to the lab and gave them a, a, a test that had nothing to do with posture uh, and they did better at it the one that impresses me most is uh, uh, mark miraven did his phd with us some years ago and has gone on to have a very nice career himself um he had people do self-control training, some kind of resisting temptation, uh, thing like that. No, it wasn't a resisting temptation. I, I'd have to look back and see exactly what the, the task was. But it actually improved people's success at quitting smoking. And uh, why I say this is the most remarkable is that uh, quitting smoking is the graveyard of psychological theories. Almost nothing works. Uh, <laughs> and they've tried one thing after another, but... People get you know addicted to smoking, and that's very hard to uh, uh, to kick with any kind of standardized intervention. But uh, I believe he tripled their success rate simply by having them do uh, self control exercises uh, for uh, a couple of weeks before they 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 did the, the smoking quitting. He's found I think similar results with uh, with drinking. Problem drinkers were better able to resist this after after exercises. So in terms of what people can do uh, to strengthen the, the self-control muscle, uh, any sorts of, well, a lot of the meditative exercises do this. Um, we look for things that have no 
extraneous consequences because that's you know the pure scientist thing. So we say like if you're right-handed uh, for two weeks, use your left hand uh, for a variety of tasks: say opening doors, brushing your teeth, using a computer mouse, mouse, drinking from a cup. It doesn't matter what they are. Um, also, we try verbal changes. So for two weeks, uh, only say yes and no. Don't use any of the yeah or yup or nope or anything like that. Um, <laughs> say no cursing might be a good one. Speaking complete sentences. Uh, again, it's sort of arbitrary what they are. The, the point is you have to watch your behavior. And when you're about to do something, override that and do something else. So the overriding is the, what uses the willpower uh, to intervene. So, you know, a habit is to reach for the door with your right hand, if you're right-handed. Uh, and so you have, mm-hmm. nope, 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 darn up, i got to use my left hand. So you override this. Once it becomes a habit to use your left hand, then it's not training your self-control anymore. But <laughs> while you, as long as there's that effortful overriding, that's what strengthens uh, the muscle. Other people have gotten stronger effects using things where people are more motivated, scientifically not as pure. Call study with uh, students have money problems, and so uh, the researchers got them to make a plan to manage their money better and worked on them with that for three months. You know, they met occasionally. And so, yeah, people got better uh, at managing their money, uh, but uh, they also reported their study habits improved. They were less likely to leave the dishes stacked in the sink after dinner. They actually put them away. Uh, they ate slightly healthier food, which is interesting because healthy food actually costs more than uh, junk food. So this went against the uh, the main thing they were working on, which is managing money. Um, so, but you know, people are motivated to comply. In my experience, the weakness in these studies of building self control is that well, if people don't do the exercises; they don't get better. It's just like your physical exercise. You say, okay, we we'll set up a, a jogging plan for you to make your your legs stronger. But if you don't do it, <laughs> the legs aren't going to be any stronger. <laughs> uh, and uh, so it probably takes some self-control to do the exercises. So you have to have some, uh, yeah. to get going in the first place. But when people do it, and again, if they're more motivated to do it, then they, they work harder on it. You're not so, going to be able to run the, the marathon if you don't put the, right, the miles absolutely. in before yeah. before doing it. Yeah. So is there a context, a, a context, you know, so much of behavioral science has a contextual element, you know, a study w- was done to determine X and it was done in with this kind of context and, and context is so, I don't know, it just, it's infused into so much of the behavioral science research, but it, it, Roy, am I understanding it correctly that there is something that is context independent when it comes to, uh, you know, building up these muscles of self-control? Well, in the first place, in all our studies, we manipulate one thing and then measure with something as different as possible. Like I mentioned, that study where the students were working on managing their money better, the test of self-control was just a uh, an attention control thing. They had to uh, follow on a TV screen. There were, like, six boxes and then they moved around and you had to keep track of which one of them was while right mm-hmm. next to it was another TV playing a distracting comedy show. And so you would be tempted to look away for that. And you know, plus it's mental work to uh, keep track of which box is going where. Uh, so obviously this has nothing to do with managing your money. 
but they were better at it if they'd done these exercises. So in that sense, it's independent uh, of context. It's like the old Victorian notion of building character that it makes you a stronger person all around. And we find, indeed, you have one part of willpower that uh, you apply to all different things. On the other hand, the context independence, it's hard to know. Most of the studies have been done in Western civilization, and uh, some in, in the advanced Asian civilizations. Uh, but whether this would work as well in a early society or hunter-gatherers or uh, any sort of very different society, that we don't know as well. Uh, indeed, uh, there's one intriguing paper uh, done with uh, class people, I think, in India, and they didn't find uh, the, the ego depletion pattern. Uh, they somewhat found the opposite. Hmm. That would suggest there may be other contexts for it. Um, the social psychology in general is sort of grappling with this issue because uh, uh, people work hard to get their initial studies done, and then other people repeat them and they don't replicate as well. Uh, ego depletion has had some of this. It was an early target for this. It's been replicated hundreds of times, so... To me, to question the reality of the the, the phenomenon is absurd, uh, but uh, but still, uh, it somehow doesn't uh, always happen. There may be uh, contextual factors, or at least what we call boundary conditions, mm-hmm. that make a difference. And I'm still looking for studies that show these boundary of conditions effectively, so that it works here and it doesn't work here. I mean, that would be the the scientific ideal uh, to advance this. Um, so. Nothing is entirely free of context, but uh, it seems to me like yeah. this is probably a, a basic property of the mind. Um, yeah, we had a we had a conversation. We talked we talked with John Barg, who's also had you know yeah. some of his studies be be in this, and and he brought up a, a very similar fact of saying, look, this is a this is an additive piece, not not a contradictory. You're finding more of those boundary conditions in, in various different aspects within some of this, which can actually be very helpful and move the, the science forward. And so that was that was really interesting. Um, I wanted to switch just a, a real quick to you had done some work with Mark Leary on needing mm-hmm. to belong, and uh, you know a lot of our listeners are in are in organizations and various different pieces of this. And one of the aspects that I wanted to to just ask you about to, to get your thought on this is, um, you know, obviously within that work, it's it's the you you pointed out that we have this push to 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 belong, right? That there's a there's an underlying drive that we have, but h- how does that manifest itself in the workplace? I mean, can you, and maybe this is a, a little uh, off off where your research was, was pointed, but I'm just thinking about, you know, how does it impact you working on a team? How does it relationship with your manager? I mean, are there, are there implications from that research that you could see parlay itself into, into the workplace? Well, of course, the uh, identification with the other people and the sense of belongingness is is quite crucial, and you see this in, in many spheres. Even remember the research on religious cults uh, that people mm-hmm. kind of go from one cult to another, and it, it's not the metaphysical theology uh, that, that keeps them, but whether they make friends. <laughs> the people who make friends in the cult stay there, and the people who don't make friends tend to drop out and move on. Or to go back to uh, uh, World War II. Uh, there was a lot of concern to motivate the soldiers to fight in uh, these increasingly deadly uh, battlefields of the of the modern world. 
Uh, they tried, they got Frank Capra to make uh, inspiring films about our country, and speeches about democracy or about uh, the protecting the people back home or whatever. But it turned out that what really motivated them was their buddies, uh, that uh, the loyalty yeah. to the small group uh, was what kept them working hard under you know, extremely stressful and dangerous conditions, uh, even to the point of risking their own lives. Uh, was that, that sense of, of belonging. And there's an interesting follow-up to that. Uh, uh, I think uh, Mark maybe uh, found the study on this, that uh, when veterans groups have reunions, the ones who had been in combat, more of the, more of the veterans showed up. Now, you'd, you'd think it would be the other way, because oh. combat is a miserable experience. But uh, it, it really stimulates this sense of belonging and the reliance and the connection to the group. And so it holds them uh, together. So identifying with your, your group, the other people in the office, your work team, as well as with the organization uh, as a whole. Um, the interesting work by uh, the late, great John Cacioppo and, and others uh, showed that there's something of a, a gender difference there, that uh, people who don't have friends are lonely, okay, no surprise. But for men, identifying with an organization can reduce your loneliness. So if it's your hmm. university or the company or even identifying with a sports team, you have a strong uh, a feeling of belonging that way. It reduces the belongingness. For women, that doesn't seem to work. Women really prioritize the one-to-one uh, intimate bond. Uh, but for men, uh, the connection to the, the group is all often really uh, important. And this can be for better or for worse. Uh, if you look at some of the excesses and dangers and you know bad things that happen in came of age right when the Nixon White House was falling apart, and I read a whole bunch of books on that, and it, it seemed he had this fanatical followers who were loyal to the, the White House team and to him, and thought and pushed each other to do uh, the most extreme things to advance his cause. And I'm guessing the, uh, the Watergate break-in that was ultimately his downfall, uh, I doubt he personally approved that. I mean, he had enough sense to know there was not much to be gained and much to be lost by committing a crime like that. Uh, but it sort of created a culture where the, the guys pushed each other to do a, you know, out of fanatical loyalty uh, to them. So that the, the sense of belonging can lead to uh, excesses as well. Uh, recently published a paper on, on organizational misconduct and it showed you know, who is most likely to do unethical things to benefit the organization and it's the people who identify most strongly with it it's your your most loyal best employees who are most likely to cheat or bend the rules to advance the uh the organization wow that's counterintuitive that yeah. that uh, right because the 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 this seems like the the natural outcome of loyalty would be defending the, the castle rather than uh actually laying siege to the very castle that you're well, loyal to. Well, but they think they're defending the castle. I mean, this was yeah. inspired in part, my colleagues who did this were in Germany, by the Volkswagen scandal, uh, when uh, came up a way to cheat the emissions tests and so uh, uh, you know, save money by making their cars look better than, than they actually were. Um, but it's, again, the loyalists who thought, yeah, this would be a great thing. 
to help the company. Um, it was the same. It, it, yeah. We had two two studies. One was a survey of a lot of workers in many occupations in Germany. That was correlational. But one, she did experiments where she got people from two universities uh, to do a, a, a kind of math test, you know, supposedly going to test the quality of students to see if we're better than that other university. And, uh, and, and they had a chance to cheat uh, to to boost their answers. And, and sure enough, it was the ones who identified most strongly with their own university that took advantage of the opportunity to cheat in order to artificially bolster their own university score. So, uh, so I think you can understand it. It's the, the people who put belongingness, putting their loyalty to the group ahead of more abstract moral considerations. There's a lot of implications from that when you think about what that means for organizations and and those loyalty components and various different aspects. I think there's probably, uh, would love your thought on this, is there an aspect of confirmation bias and motivated reasoning that comes into that, that their people are looking at certain things through a lens that then discounts every the, the other aspects of it? Is that something that you think is taking place in there or is that out uh. of line? That's that's very possible. Um, given my scientific training, I shouldn't uh, talk beyond what we know. So there's a lot of work. <laughs> but this is a podcast where this is your just this <laughs> is your personal opinion. Okay. So we can we can yeah. go there. You know, it was a lot of work just to get that first point and show that uh, identify the people who identified as more strongly yeah. with the organization were more likely to uh, uh, to cheat or do unethical things to benefit it. Um, and again, I assume it's driven by need to belong and uh, the strong identification people yeah. get with this. Uh, beyond that, uh, the mental process of those people was, I, I'm not as sure. You know, people <laughs> know the moral rules, uh, and they also know that there are potential penalties for doing unethical things, but they don't always consider them. That's not always what drives the decision and, you know, the seeing the opportunity to do something to benefit the organization that you you love and that takes care of you and that you identify with, that might uh, take, take precedence over it. It goes back to some of the thing you said about self-control, that, that, that short-term, you know, versus a long-term impact, right? So it's the, you know, we, we, we tend to fall for those short-term pleasurable things versus the long-term benefits of, 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 of some of that aspect. And you could see maybe some of that taking yes, place as well. Another so. one of my work is on self-destructive behavior and the, the standard form people do a lot of self-destructive things, but it's not because of some kind of Freudian death wish or, or whatever. Uh, it's not even because <laughs> they feel guilty and think they should be punished. I mean, most people who, who are guilty hire a lawyer and do everything they can to avoid punishment. Uh, but rather, the the most common formula for self-destructive behavior is short-term gain connected to long-term cost. Uh, it can start with smoking mm. cigarettes. Um, short-term gain is, is quite real. You feel better. You're, you're actually even a little bit smarter. Uh, I didn't want to believe this, but uh, non-smokers, <laughs> non-smokers who smoke a cigarette will score higher on an IQ test uh, before the test. So it gives you <laughs> energy improves your cognitive function and so on. But of course, the, the distant future consequences uh, can be quite negative, including her death. Um, so uh, short-term gain, long-term cost, that, that's it. That brings us back in a way to the how we're responding to the COVID uh, uh, crisis and many other things uh, 
going on, the, the immediate bad thing really seizes the mind and captures the attention. I was wondering, in all of the, you've published many books and many, many articles, and you've you've done so much research uh, in your career. Is there anything that in the back of your mind stands out as, you know, I wish that this was particularly, this one little piece was more appreciated. Is there a, is there a particular study or a line of research that you felt, gosh, you know, it's just really undervalued um, in some way? Oh goodness. There are probably lots of them. There are also, there's also a long list of great ideas ahead that were ruined by the data. Oh. <laughs> Which is yes, what science yeah, is about, right? Yes, you know, it should have been true. I don't know. I, uh, uh, psychology right now is uh, becoming much more swept into political activism. So findings that go against the preferred uh, you know, political views uh, don't uh, get uh, accepted or noticed or recognized. Um, that's a, I think, an unfortunate trend. Uh, to me, I went into the field attracted by the idea of using the scientific method to understand people. Um, others go into it uh, wanting to use research to change the world and advance their political causes in the way they think. And they're unfortunately taking over. So I think some of my work is uh, not liked or not appreciated because of that. And yeah, some of these things I don't even like myself. My uh, my goal is to understand the big picture and you have to realize the world is not the way you want it to be and the mind is not. You've got to win some, lose some and, and accept that. So I've tried to become apolitical and not even care as just so that I can, as caring slows me down from recognizing things that I don't like. Bravo. Yeah, in terms of how people have reacted to the, my work is some things get pushed back uh, just because they don't fit with uh, what is preferred among the you know, the ruling parties in the field, which are... Interesting. Yeah. And uh, you think about the scientific method, the the way that it is, and, and uh, it should be data-driven. It should be, you know, the, the, the outcome shouldn't be determined by a pre-held belief. It should be driven by what the data says. Um, you know, we uh, my my favorite conversation on this is we had Gary Latham who who was talking about, you know, he started doing some of his uh, priming research to disprove the idea of priming because he said I don't want that to be in in industrial organizational science that is his area, and he said when the research when the data came back though it just was it it said I couldn't, you know, it, it said the opposite, and so he he had to change his viewpoint on that, and that's. That's what you would like to believe researchers, scientists that, that hold this truth would, would look at. And they'd look at the data as opposed yeah. to saying, does this fit my narrative yeah, or doesn't it? It's sort of a, a mythology in the field where we invite, we admire the scientists who stick to their guns and fight for their, their theory on and on and on. Whereas I think we should admire the people who change their opinions and say, oh, I used to think this and I like that theory, but after the data showed me otherwise, I've changed my mind. Well, speaking of which, you said mentioned earlier that you are listening to some Yo-Yo Ma, even though you kind of consider yourself a jazz guy. Are you are you typically a jazz guy, like from um, 1920s, like really early jazz, or more like uh, 1950s, 60s, bebop and and Bird and John Coltrane, or uh, where, where where do you where do you come into the jazz 
um, the sort of literature, if, if you will. My jazz tastes are a little complicated. My mother played trumpet in uh, some Dixieland bands uh, back in the 40s, and so oh. um, I, I grew up listening to that. I still have a lot of affection for that. Louis Armstrong was a family hero. Uh, I think my parents didn't know he was a marijuana smoker, uh, which would have might have <laughs> dulled their appreciation. But uh, um, So I like the small bands. I like the trumpet. Uh, I learned the trumpet myself, although when I had braces, I had to give it up. It was uh, the braces were too hard on, the, on those days. Uh, I have the trumpet player's sort of resentment of the saxophone as the show-off uh, gimmick. Uh, kind of <laughs> uh, although there Bravo are some saxophone players, I, I have to say. But uh, uh, Coltrane, um, a couple of his albums were great, but I, I'm not a big big fan. But the Miles Davis, Cannonball Adderley was one I always liked, uh, and he and his brother, the Trumpet cornet mm. player also, uh, they made a great pair. So I like the small bands. The the big bands somehow never uh, turned me on as much. I don't like the squeaking and squealing kinds of things either. Uh, again, which tends to be the saxophone stuff. Um, Miles Davis did some of that, but Big Spiderback did, did. Does yeah, uh, does Spiderback yeah, fit in your uh, to get Pantheon? Yeah, recordings of him. I myself played guitar for many years yeah. uh, in some rock and jazz bands, and so I appreciate the guitarists. Uh, John McLaughlin is still uh, um, my favorite, and uh-huh. so on. Um, and uh, I always wondered, my mother used to take me to see all these old Dixieland bands, and I'd see these guys in their 80s playing trombone and uh, trumpet and whatnot, but there were never any guitarists. I wondered why. But as I got old myself, I realized that you get arthritis, and even McLaughlin has finally given up the guitar because of just the arthritis uh, does it. So I'm yeah. playing around a bit on the piano myself. Uh, I appreciate the piano as I like to compose. I see why most of the great composers were piano players. So I like, I like yeah. most of the instruments, so guitar, piano, vibes, trumpet. Uh, featuring a small band featuring any of those is good. Uh, the sax, if it's not too squeaky, and so on. So, where does Stan Getz fit in into that uh, squeakiness? I mean, he was like the ultimate and smooth, but it, much more Latin. Uh, I mean, so much of his stuff uh, kind of veered into that that Latin and samba stuff. Uh, does, does would Getz fit I for you as know. a as a? I don't know his stuff as well. I, I heard some that I liked, um, and so I have some in my playlist, but not a lot. Too. So we've been asking. We've been asking uh, many of our guests. We're working uh, Melanie Brooks. Tim, where is Melanie? Where is she researched? She's, she's at Columbia. She just started this at Columbia. At, at Columbia. But, but we're, she's doing some research on music and work. Uh, and we're just trying to get some anecdotal uh, components and asking everybody, do you listen to music when you, when you work? Do you listen to music when you write or when you're doing research? Or, yes. Or is that uh, yes. not at I all? Have to, oh, oh. I have mostly them, the new electronic music I've sorted through. A lot. It has to be instrumental because all my work I have to have my own thoughts and anybody else putting words into my brain is just counterproductive. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, I uh, I like kind of up-tempo. I never really like slow music. Uh, impatient, I guess. Um, but I like uh, you know, melodic, subtle, up-tempo um, instrumental music. I play it all day. I don't want to... Uh, be a downer here, but a few years ago, my daughter died. I gifted a child, and she died. Uh, a heart problem. Um, so Sorry, after that, I, uh, 
I realized I had to just have music playing all day. So I'd get up, turn the music on, started to keep ah. my emotions uh, from wandering. Um, and this was a few years ago. I, I probably don't need it as much anymore, but I got to like having music on all day. It's really very, uh, very pleasant. <laughs> and one thing you can do then is search through, I use Spotify, build up these uh, many hour long playlists of uh, good music. So, yeah, mostly I have um, music playing all the time and, and definitely when I work. Do, do you find that the, the, the Spotify channels that you have, that, that they elicit different emotions or you can you can create a curate kind of a, a playlist that is up, more of your upbeat and more of your reflective, maybe more somber type things? Yes, are yeah. you, are you, do you find yes. that uh, I, to be true? I have like a hundred playlists, been sorting them for different uh, occasions of things i've kind of realized that the mood you want is, is sort of should be the organizing principle so some are a little bit more thoughtful mysterious uh, kinds of things versus more rhythmic energy work hard feel good uh, sorts of things Roy, this has been a, a tremendous treat for us we really appreciate your taking time and sharing your thoughts and your stories and everything with us thank you thank you very much yeah thanks for having me Groovers, welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our conversation with the amazing Roy Baumeister, have a free-flowing discussion, and whatever else comes into our crazy self-control, emotional, anticipating brains. There we go. Okay, so you're packing in a lot there. I, I tried. <laughs> I, I was I was gonna put like our four uh, you know what? What is it? The four to one break-even point piece. Yeah, oh, 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 the rule. The do. rule of the rule of four. The is rule it? of four. Yeah. Maybe yeah. that's what. Should we do it re- over again? And I can just do a rule of four. Should I? <laughs> no. It. Uh, it, it's just amazing. I couldn't figure out what to say there because we covered so much ground. I mean, the yeah. it was yeah. amazing when you think about. Uh, all of this. And, and to think we started off bringing in the hedge fox, which I think threw him for a loop because it was eons old, ago. And, and yeah. as, you, as we mentioned in the intro, he's done so much. How can you remember all of like, like it's, you know, if I had a big paper published, I would be remembering it because it's the only one I did. And it's the only thing I ever get to talk about when you have 30 books and hundreds of articles. It's like, it's yeah. like, ah, yeah. It was it's just, just a, one, one of the many things that I have made my name well known yeah. on. So. Oh, I, I wrote that with George. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, oh, just, a, well. just another one of them. <laughs> All right. So so with, with that, I mean, again, uh, just very thankful that that Roy was kind enough to to spend some time with us and to to share his wisdom. But what did you take? What did you what did you take out of this? What was what was your your thoughts? Yeah, I'm not really I'm n- nothing. You know, just, <laughs> oh God, man, overwhelmed, you know, the, the, the pages of notes that came from this are, there's, there's so much packed, but how about if we start with emotions and decision-making? So amazing stuff. Cause again, uh, I, I'm always, I, I'm always amazed when, when I get to learn something new, when, when somebody brings in some new knowledge and not saying that I know a lot about this, I'm, I'm still learning, um, but I feel like I'm, I'm 
relatively well informed on a lot of the behavioral science work. But when he talked about the anticipated emotion versus emotion driving our behavior, that was a, a, a new concept for me. And I, I should probably have known this, but the idea that you know, emotions themselves, it, emotions in the moment aren't what are actually driving us. It is this uh, anticipated emotion that we uh, think about what it is that we're going to feel, and that drives our behavior much more so than what we're feeling in the moment. That yeah. was uh, eye-opening, if uh, to say the least. I, I couldn't agree more. And the way that he said it, talking about the real value of the human emotional system, which I just thought was a cool idea right there. The real value of the human emotional system is not in the emotions you feel, but you, to use them to make decisions about how you can simulate the future. Yeah. It's like, okay, that's that's kind of mind-bending in that we're doing this constantly. We're constantly simulating the future. We're constantly playing out all, you know, what a, a possible future could be. And it, it certainly that makes me think about the way that we make decisions in general, especially under uncertainty, right? We're typically playing out one scenario, right? It, and that's why we get into this all or nothing, which is of course the why we one of the reasons we love Annie Duke's thinking and bets model so much, yeah. right? But but here we have uh, we, we sort of we have Roy sort of telling us we're playing this out our decisions into the future and saying, what would this be like? Will I feel good about this? Will I feel bad about it? And you brought up the fact that this is an automatic response, that it isn't something that you're actually necessarily contemplating. You're not sitting there, oh, am I going to feel anger or sadness or joy from this? It is a, mm. it is an automatic response that we get this anticipation of what's going on. And he brought up this, you know, he brought up the idea of guilt within there and various different yeah. aspects. And I think the the concept there is, is, look, we've all been in those situations where we, we are, we're going, if I do this, I'm going to feel guilty, right? That's the, you don't actually necessarily consciously think that, but you know, that is going to happen. And so that influences your behavior to a point much more so than actually feeling guilt in the moment potentially could. So, yeah. yes. well, and in that conversation, you brought up Dan Gilbert, uh, yeah, and, and Dan Gilbert's affective forecasting stuff. Uh, what was which, which again to, for for me, you know, I had the, and maybe it was just I, I I've forgotten, but I think many people maybe have the same belief that I did is this idea that you know, you kind of shorten all of Dan Gilbert's work down into, oh, well, we're not very good at forecasting our emotions. And the idea is, no, we're actually really good at forecasting our emotions. We're just horrible at at forecasting the duration and the magnitude of those emotions. So yeah. uh, as again, I think we talked about this afterwards, you said, you know, the social cocktail party where it's like anticipate you lost your job or your spouse and what would it be? How would you be feeling one year after the fact? And most people are, oh, I'd be horrible. I couldn't get out of bed. And in reality, that's not the case. So yes, your spouse dies, you lose your job. You're going to feel that sadness. You're going to feel yeah. that immensely. But it's the how long the duration of how long that lasts and how quickly we adapt back into kind of that homeostasis point of of kind of now life is going on various different things and that happens on both ends of the scales and what yep. what Roy you know highlighted is that system is actually good at predicting uh, what we're the anticipated emotion that we have which is part of why 
this e- emotional, the emotional system and the uh, uh, anticipated emotion aspect of it are really powerful in driving our behavior because it gets reinforced because yeah. we do something and we know, we think that it's going to feel bad or we think it's going to feel good and we're right. We are <laughs> yeah, almost we're always right. 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 Yeah, so, I love that. It, it's pretty good stuff. Okay. How about you, Kurt? What, uh, what, what would you like to groove on? Well, uh, you know, obviously what you just talked about was what we just talked about was great. Um, you know, you brought up the power of bad. Um, and again, on this, this, uh, the rule of four to me is just fascinating because mm-hmm. I think it has so many implications for making a positive impact on people's lives. If we understand in our relationships that for every negative occurrence, it isn't a one-to-one relationship. I can't just, I, I did something stupid with my wife. I can't just do the dishes one night and go up. Oh, oh, we're even, you know, wash, you know, take my hands from this. <laughs> no, that I actually need to do four good deeds uh, in order to feel like uh, it's anything equal in her mind and to get back into her good graces. So absolutely. Uh, th- this was a great conversation for me also, because I was not familiar with John Gottman uh, before Roy brought him up and think it's fascinating. He's got this uh, foundation and he works with uh, marriages and long-term relationships and all kinds of things. He's John Gottman is deep into this study and I, I find it fascinating and I'm really, really glad that um that we got to sit on this in this conversation with Roy in part just to learn a little bit about John Gottman. Well, and then, and then we haven't published this, this episode, but we got Eli Finkel, who, again, we bring up John Gottman gets brought up again in in Eli's work. So we might have to go out and reach out for John Gottman. So if any of our listeners know of him or have any connection, we'd love to talk with him. But yeah, so this idea of the power of bad. And and as you said, I, I love this part that you said is that the, the title seems really negative, really down, but you're, it's a it's a really kind of an upbeat book. Yeah, right? I mean, it it's, it's a great book about how do we get along in life and how you can use these negative uh, elements in order to make your life better. Yeah, it, it really is. I think it's a it's a it's an excellent read and and highly recommended. We'll have we'll, of course we'll have links in the show notes. Um, All right. We should also talk about self control and willpower. I can't. I, 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 <laughs> you know, I like to talk about things that I have some knowledge of, or some, and, and I just I don't have any any you know ability to have self control or well, no, that's joking. I have some. You have you have plenty. You have you have a lot. Again, right? This is part of Roy's yes. comment, right? So don't we always we not always, but we so easily think about self control in the negative when we're not giving ourselves enough credit for just having it, especially in the whole world. Like humans are really, really good at self-control. Relatively speaking, I mean, as he said, compared to animals, we just kick their butts, right? (laughs) So, which is very true. I think we, and as he mentioned, you know, it's one of those things that in any survey that you take, everybody, you know, says, hey, I don't have self-will. I don't have that that self-control. I'm sorry, not self-will, self-control. Uh, those are those those aspects, though, that when we actually think about our life, we do have a lot of self-control. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I loved in this conversation is also looking at how do we 
So how why why is self control so hard? And and part of that is the energy that self control burns, right? It's it's it reduces the body's ability for self control on on other things when you do it. And and the right. idea that self control, you know, and again, this has had some some controversy out there, but this idea that self control is like a muscle. Um, but you know, the, the, pres there's, there's a lot of evidence that, that points to you that that's not a bad analogy, that there is some, some truth in this, that you can build up your self-control and yet your self-control, just like a muscle, right? If you use it a lot at that day, it gets worn out, it gets tired and you're, you can't lift as much. You can't have as much self-control, but yeah. over time, if you're, you're working on self-control and you're building that up, you're going to have more of it. I've had some experience in working with people who uh, struggle from mental illnesses and uh, they have talked in very candid terms about how they would get up and go to a job where they had to exhibit a tremendous amount of self-control, like if they had Tourette's, for instance, or or they're they're pretty high on the autistic scale, where they're exhibiting a lot of self-control to stay within the social norms and the social boundaries throughout the day. And then when they get home, it's just like all hell breaks loose because mm -hmm. they're literally worn out. And and it's interesting to hear this, uh, to hear Roy talk about this, to to really support these these. Uh, what, what people are actually going through on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I also like the way he talked about how the self-control serves the future at the expense of the present. Again, uh, one of the, what, it's a, such a great line. It's such a great, <laughs> great comment because we are. So as much difficulty as we have with the abstract future and we're much better dealing with the concrete present, we are constantly serving the future. We're constantly making making decisions that are serving the future at the expense of the present. Well, and and to that point, you know, looking future-wise, right? If you want to increase your self-control, uh, you know, Roy brought up some really interesting simple concepts. Go a week without swearing. Go a week without saying uh y'all or like uh, you know, all of those simple things that can exert your ability to have self-control, which can pass over and be, uh, you know, not just around that simple topic, but actually then get uh, transposed into the ge more general self-control that you have. So those are just things that we can all do and all try in order to improve that. So I, I've actually been doing the opening the uh, doors. I'm right-handed and I've been opening doors with my left hand just to see how that feels. And, you know, it's the kind of thing that it feels funny every, every time I approach a door. It's like, oh, no, use my left hand. And it's fantastic, actually. I, I'm, I'm super enjoying it. Yeah. Um, you know, he also talked, we talked about needing to belong with Mark Leary uh, and this whole concept of cults and World War II and yeah. why people fight. You know, they're not fighting for country or, or God or love. They're fighting for that. You know their their, their parks hole buddy, yeah, yeah, that is sitting there right next to him, and and the the piece that was fascinating for me, and I've said fascinating three times now, so I need some more self control about fascinating. Probably said it more than that. We go back and count. the The thing that was interesting uh, for me is being able to utilize the this concept inside of organizations and and taking that from this idea 
of loyalty is actually one of the things that can lead people to do bad things. Um, so if you're mm -hmm. an organization and this idea of the Volkswagen scandal was driven by people who were really loyal to the organization, this yeah. need to feel like the, 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 the bond with that organization was so strong that they just overlooked or they maybe purposely uh, did some things in the Volkswagen case and same thing with the Nixon White House. And I think that has a implication for how organizations need to look at their most loyal people and give us a, a moment of pause. Not that we don't want loyal people within our organization, but it's this idea that those may be the people who are most likely to overlook or to do things in the name of to justify the ends and not look at what the damage that they're doing. And you can look today out there, you know, current governments, um, current organizations that are going through some negative pieces. And you can probably find some examples of this as you as you look at it. Paul Manafort is uh, in jail in large part because his uh, of his fervent uh, support of Trump as a candidate led him to uh, go to uh, Russia, for instance, mm -hmm. and to solicit, uh, you know, their their help on things, and you know that he he's very passionate about it. He's very loyal. He's very dedicated, and um, that got him into trouble. Yeah, so, and and I think it it puts uh, everybody in trouble when those loyalists that are so emboldened with this idea that. I'm making sure that the the company or the organization or the person that I'm supporting uh, is 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 right. Then you run into these issues where they may feel in their own mind that it's okay to bend or break whatever laws or rules or norms that are there. And so we have to yeah. just be on the lookout for that and understand that that may be the person who puts your company most at risk, not the person who doesn't give a shit about the company. That's right. Uh, it's, it's more likely the person that loves your company to death that may be the one who is is putting things at risk with that. Which is counterintuitive, but yeah, but very real. Right. So I I want to just end on, on this part just from the perspective of some of the quotes that he had in here. And, and you pointed this out, I, I think are just so on the spot. It's, yeah. it's it's really they're they're short they're they're snippy and they pack a lot of punch they make you think and so you know the one that I love is the one that we were just talking about right is that we have a mythical it, not what we were talking about relates to what we were just talking about is that we have a mythical admiration for the scientist that sticks to their guns and their theories. But I think we should admire the people who change their opinions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, you, you think about the implications of that. And, and, and I look at myself and I go, yeah, I like those people that, uh, you know, fight for this is the way things are. And this is the way that it is. Uh, and, and particularly as, it think, as you think about scientists, though, scientists should be led by the evidence. And yet we often find that no I will I will dis disregard new evidence if it's contrary to my mm -hmm. 
previous held beliefs. It's confirmation bias, even within the scientific community. And so we ought to exalt those people that, that are willing to change their minds. And I go back to our conversation with Gary Latham, and I, I, I have to exalt him for what he, how he talked about his whole, you know, I don't know, skepticism about priming, uh, very real skepticism about priming and the fact that he set out to disprove it and the evidence pointed contrary to that. So over and over and over and over and over again, yeah. it, kept, it kept being disproved. It's pretty fat. It's pretty fantastic, actually. How but the idea that he changed his tune on that because yeah. the evidence thus pointed to that. Yeah, yeah, that he did. Um, one of my favorite, there, there are so many things that he said that were super wise, but he said, mood should be the organizing principle of your playlist. How about that? I, so, okay. So uh, granted within the overall behavioral science thing, but coming from Roy, just to say, just think about your mood. Just think about the mood that you, you want to prime or prompt or that you're in and just respond to that. And I thought that that's, that's a great way of thinking about your playlist. And so, of course, you bring it back to music. Oh, well, why not, right? <laughs> In fact, I'm going to actually bring it back to a question for you. How do you organize your playlist? By mood. Of course. I'm being your, facetious to a certain degree, but there's 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 reality in there. Um, I thought your moods would be like happy, super happy, ultra happy, just never happier than this. It just, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I I can have a dark side too, right? I can, well, musically you, know, you do. You know, there you go. So I I do have that that mood thing. No, I, I, I remember I used to, used to name my playlist back when you could, uh, when you made mixtapes and different yeah, things, yeah. I would name them. I, I wouldn't name them about moods, but words that evoked moods. Um, that, that we have, I, I knew you were going to ask me that. And I, I'm trying to, to draw something. I, and I don't remember off the top of my head, uh, but they were just, they were random. I'll make something up that would be similar. So I don't know if this is a reality or not, but it would be, you know, um, uh, downtrodden, right? So, um, and that's, maybe that's more of a mood word than, than otherwise, but that would be, you know, or, um, you know, sparkle might be uh, an, another one. I don't think I ever had a, a, a mixtape called Sparkle, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but you could have. You but could I have. could have. Uh -huh. It might have been rainbows and, and unicorns too. I don't know. But. <laughs> Which is one of your favorite playlists now, right? That, well, it, it is. I, I listen to it all the time. <laughs> it's it's my ministry tape of of the oh, early right. years. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That I'm sure that that's the that's the ministry tape. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How well, about you? How do you how do you organize your playlists? I used By to location, geography, artists. You know who they no. who they used to who they played with. There are times that I have, I, I should say, I have a, a couple of different ways. Sometimes it's by artist because I really just want to get into an artist. Um, I just want to listen to his or her songwriting or performance style. And so I've got, I've got playlists that are organized around artists, but that's only for a handful, a dozen or so. Most of them are actually around experiences. Like I've got a dinner playlist. Like I remember, and 
I remember when you said like you have uh, when you're making French food playlists mm-hmm. or when you're making German food playlists. So um, so I have, have I have playlists for dinner and playlists for evening and playlists for Saturday morning. Hmm. And there might be some mood implied in that, but I'm going after this hard. I'm going after the mood thing now. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to change up my playlist and and shoot for mood. Well, just FYI, I didn't make the playlist about French wine or French cooking music. It is that one on Pandora that you just go. Can you play French <laughs> cooking music? And I'll play the French cooking music uh, playlist. Here you go. Sounds so, good. Yeah, there. That's it. Okay. All right. Well, hang on. I will uh, be giving you a uh, uh, bonus track here in just a minute. Hey, Groovers, this is Kurt with the bonus track. The first thing that we discussed with Roy was about emotions and decision making. Roy reminded us that emotions are not as lightning fast as we thought they were. The idea that emotions are what kept our ancestors safe from wild predators has been displaced by new science that indicates that our anticipated emotions have a powerful effect on how we think. It turns out that the best role that emotions play in our behaviors is in forecasting what our emotions will be after we do in a particular behavior. These anticipated emotions help us decide what we should do now based on how we anticipate feeling later on. And as Roy noted, it's okay to write the email when you're angry, just don't hit send until after you're in a cooler state. We talked about his new book with John Terry, The Power of Bad, and how the best relationships have at least four good things happening for every one bad thing that happens. It's a simple equation, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. A large portion of our discussion with Roy was about self-control and how great a strength it is from an evolutionary perspective. He shared his thoughts on two self-control studies that really excited us. One study found that if we burn energy for self-control on one thing, it reduces the body's ability for self-control on other things. And the second study found that self-control muscle can be exercised and strengthened. Roy said that training self-control for one thing can lead to an increased self-control in other things. We like that concept and how it can apply to all sorts of home and work ideas. Our last major discussion topic with Roy was on the need to belong and how the most loyal and committed people in an organization are most likely to cut corners, like in Richard Nixon's White House or the Volkswagen emission scandal. It was people who believed they were being loyal who became the bad actors. That's a fascinating thing to consider in our world today. All right. Let's get on with the groove idea for the week. Tim and I are big believers in successful relationships at work and at home. And Roy's recent book, The Power of Bad, indicated that we need four good deeds to overcome one bad deed. It's called the rule of four. Really simple to remember. So we'd like you to think about how you can use this this week with people that you have relationships with. If there's something you said or did that wasn't as kind or generous as you would have liked it to be, make sure that you do four really nice things or say four very complimentary and authentic things to that person. Uh, It's not an experiment, but an act of kindness that will likely improve your anticipated emotional well-being, and it won't cost a thing. So let's end on something Roy said that inspired us when it comes up to sticking to your guns and taking on new ideas. I think we should admire the people who change their opinions and say, oh, I used to think this and I like that theory, but 
after the data showed me otherwise, it changed my mind. Well, Groovers, this ends our 170th episode of Behavior Grooves. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you go out and have a very, very great week. Mm-hmm.